Anne Lamott has authored some 19 books over the years. She explores the thorny issues of faith, motherhood, childhood, and addiction and sobriety. In her latest book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, on revival and courage, she posits a series of questions. How can we recapture the confidence we once had as we stumble through the dark times that seem increasingly bleak? How do we cope as bad news piles up? When do we get our sense of ourselves and our safety back? And how did we get so much older so fast? This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In Dusk, Night, Dawn, Anne Lamott breaks down life's bigger problems into smaller-sized questions that we can ponder without feeling overwhelmed. She offers her characteristic humor and wit, self-deprecation and raw honesty in helping us parse the issues and come to some conclusions that draw us closer to the semblance of an answer and glimmers of light among the shadows. I talked to Anne Lamott about her book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, on revival and courage. The title, Dusk, Night, Dawn, it kind of puts me in the mind of a previous book of yours called Help, Thanks, Wow, the the three-word title. And Dusk, Night, Dawn does a lot of work, too, like that other title does, in that it moves us into a a kind of a pending darkness, then we're in the pitch of it, and then we can see the glimmer of light on the other side. Where do we begin to recover our faith, you write, in life, in the midst of so much bad news and dread when our children's future are so uncertain? Tell me, tell me about the title and this very important question from your book. Well, um, the title came about, I'll tell you, let me tell you first where the, how the book came about, and then I'll tell you about the title. The book came about because the last book I wrote was called Almost Everything, Thoughts on Hope, although I had originally wanted to call it Doomed, <laughs> Thoughts on Hope, but the publisher didn't think that had a, a big selling um, ring to it. But um, so I had been touring the country to promote this hope book, and everywhere I went, people just felt really doomed and sad and scared, scared for their children's future. The UN climate change reports had just come out, and and uh, you know, and then uh, not long after, an entire continent caught fire, Australia, and then my state, California, caught fire, and and uh, because we hadn't raked our forests correctly, I guess, and. But it wasn't just what was happening on land, it was also what was happening at dining room tables, you know, because families are hard, hard, hard. And so everywhere I went, I said to people, this is all going to be hard, turning around a a family member, helping somebody survive, turning around climate change, but we're good at hard. And so I started writing stories that addressed both that we're good at at hard and how we revive, you know, how we resurrect, how we get a second wind. So um, that was how the book got started. And then I discovered this amazing thing, which is that twilight, the word for twilight means both the dusk as that trippy light um, signals that the night is coming 
And twilight also means the dawn, when the darkness ends and begins to fade or bleed into the light and a brand new morning. And um, so I thought about, I thought I'd never seen America in a darker night since I've been here. I'll be 67 next month. Um, and I've been through the very dark night of the soul, both personally in my own life and with my son, who's 31 years old now and nine years sober. So we had, we've been through it and who has a 11 year old child. And you know, we, we all know from the dark night of the soul. And when you're there or when you were in the night of the last few years, it feels like, well, we're doomed. It's so scary. Where do we start? So the entire book is um, begins with that question. And, I, you know, the answer always is we start where we are. You know, we look up, we look around, we take a long, quavering, deep breath and we push back our sleeves and, and we take one action that may be helps us shake off some of the really grim, scary stuff we've been through. I love something Mother Teresa said you know, 40 years ago. She said, no one can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And a lot of the stories in Dusk Night Dawn are about moments of great, surprising love in, in dark nights of the soul. And I hope the book is funny. You know, I, I uh, it's serious themes, but... I've always said that laughter is carbonated holiness, but I also just heard this great line of Trevor Noah's who said, when you laugh with someone, you know you've been through something together. And I love that so much. And that's sort of what I hope I've accomplished with the book. Oh my gosh, I think you have. There is so much that is funny in this book. Uh, I like laugh out loud, stop and laugh out loud funny. And it's unexpected. And it's layered into these anecdotes about the dark times. So there is that contrast that you write about between the dark and the light. Uh, you write about this idea of like, too bad Presbyterian marriages can't be annulled. And your anecdote about <laughs> going to a reading where every single person, seven of them, went on for too long. That's when I think everyone who misses going to readings because of the pandemic really needs to read and then go and hug their their laptop because I mean th there are so many funny moments even in oh, thank you. A, a, an anecdote um, in the chapter kitten which has the potential to just you know ruin everybody's day <laughs> uh, but then it doesn't uh, and I'll I'll save the spoiler but we you lead us to this very profound idea that becomes a kind of a mantra for you later on for you and your husband that the kitten isn't dead when we're faced with dreading so many complex issues that surround us you you share this story where I mean it it's not funny on the surface, <laughs> but it's very funny. This idea about the kitten isn't dead, so we have to keep going and we have to have hope. No, not only is the kitten not dead, the kitten's just in the living room. <laughs> but the kitten has discovered some wormhole invisible to other species that she has disappeared into. But it doesn't, I don't think it ruins the plot, but uh, because the plot is really not the important thing, but a kitten who is, you know, the reason for going on with life in the middle of terrible, terrible years and fires and 
whatnot, um, the kitten goes missing. And what, what the plot is, is trying to find the kitten. But what the story is, is what goes on um, in, in despair in your mind, especially if you were raised around alcoholics or addicts or the mentally ill, is that you prepare for, you know, the, the anvil to ro- drop on your head in life because, and you prepare for catastrophe because that was the only means you really had as control of control as a small child. And, um, and so it seems to be the default place. So the kitten's gone for several hours. Obviously the kitten is dead and you need to begin preparing for this. And I was newly married or maybe, no, not even yet married. I only got married two years ago, uh, three days before I got social security, but I'd only agreed to marry this guy who's violently allergic to cats if we could get a cat because, and um, he had a secret, I'll tell your listeners, that he um, really is violently allergic, but he had discovered that if you put brewer's yeast in their kibble, after a week or so, he wasn't allergic to them anymore. So it was like a very fraught thing. It was about our impending nuptials and me getting old. I don't know how that happened, but getting Social Security, which I do love, and um, and having a kitten who represented all of love and all of happiness and all of cuddly comfort who goes missing and what happens to this dear, if possibly overly tense couple. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was, at the end, I was going to get pins made up for everybody like me who's a little bit more anxious than the average bear that said, the kitten isn't dead, the kitten's in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> I would so wear that button. Uh, um, in the chapter called Snail Him, we learn a lot about forgiveness. You say that forgiveness is maturity. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the number 18 and what you learned from a woman named Esther about that number and how maybe you still carry that number around with you today. I mean, that's the thing about this book. When you finish reading it, you realize that part of what we're learning is that other people, other hurting people, are basically good in their forgiveness and hacking at this bramble in front of us so we can also see the road clearly. And Esther is one person who showed you that, but there are other figures here too that you react to like in airports and stores and Sunday school. Kind of anywhere I go, I, I tend to get into small resentments. And in the case of Esther, a uh, terrible thing, which was when I was I got sober almost 35 years ago. There's a great Texas story in, in um, the book, by the way, about a woman from Texas who really saved me oh, in yes. early sobriety in her pink Cadillac, who I came to see as the automobile of God. But um, any, at any rate, Esther was a woman who I'd really betrayed in my 20s when I was drinking in this small town and I'd had an affair with her husband and um, she and when I got sober I I just wrote to her of deep contrition and 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 just what a disgrace I was and that if there was any way I could make it up there really wasn't but that I didn't I didn't expect her to forgive me but that I wanted her to understand what I that I under that I knew what I had done and and was grievously sorry for it and she wrote a beautiful letter she was Jewish and she wrote back that my lack of forgive that 
I needed to forgive myself that I was um, I, I I had done something. My behavior was awful, but my my being isn't. My heart isn't. That you know we have dual citizenship here. We have our biographical and in my case alcoholic um, side of things. And then if if you're a believer, then you believe you're also a child of the divine. So. And, uh, and she's basically expressed that, that she forgave me, but that was going to be child's play compared to me forgiving myself. Then I didn't see her for years, and she showed up at a, um, a, wor- a writing workshop I did, and she brought me these very clumsily taped together coins that totaled 18 cents, a dime, a nickel, and three pennies. And it looked like something your four-year-old grandchild would make you. And she explained that 18 was a sacred number in the Hebrew scripture, in the Hebrew culture, and that it meant a blessing. And it was a blessing. And she brought me a blessing that I could hold on to. And um, it's very early in California, and I can't quite remember why um eight what 18 symbolizes but it's a very sacred and holy number and she put it in my hand from her hand and that is a moment like you know on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel um, where the fingertips touch and uh, and so I write about that against all odds people forgive people forgive us and even harder we forgive other people who have harmed us and our families that to me is proof enough there's a God in heaven. Speaking of, of Texas, in Texas in February, we had a snowstorm that knocked out yeah. power for days. So reading four nights, three days in your book, it, it arrived for me kind of providentially with some uh-huh. pretty impeccable timing. You write... Uh-huh. It's about a blackout. It and, is. Yeah. And... and and not because of a, a snowstorm, obviously, but because of the, the fires. Um, so th- they would turn off the power in uh, where you live. And you write, when the lights go out and we deploy our candles and lanterns, we see the beauty of contrast, which makes both light and shadow precious. There's a lot of humor in this essay, too. Um, but there there's some serious stuff, too, about this idea of when we are forced to sit in in the darkness with the darkness yeah then when the lights come on where are we what are we where are we in terms of how we can perceive our lives and and how do we change as a consequence yeah how does it change us and how do we agree to be changed which is such such a tough one for me because I just so love my little comfort zones and um you know but in Cal- in our, our county it, it was extremely frustrating and painful and and weird but in Texas people were dying and I think maybe what changed you all was um, the profound outpouring of love and supplies that arrived, you know, that that I sent money to four or five Texas uh, food pantries, always the main message, of, uh, the takeaway message for, G- of, 
for me of Jesus is take care of the poor, you know, feed children, you know, figure it out is not a good slogan, feed children. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's, you know, there was that wonderful thing Mr. Rogers always said about what his mother had told him when he was a little boy and, and a tragedy was occurring. And she said, look to the helpers, you know, that's where you'll see the face of God and goodness. And um, when we in California watch the outpouring of love and service and volunteers and and, uh, and giving, it just brings tears to your eyes, you know? And um, there's, you know, you can't do, we, I couldn't do a lot for the people of Texas, but I could try to help you laugh a little and I could help you feed your people. You know, that's sort of the battle cry, I think, of the book is, that we do what's possible, which is kind of infuriating because we'd like to do so much more. I'd like to save and fix and rescue a number of people I won't name right now, but who, for whom I have excellent ideas on, on ways that I think their life might might um, turn around in a, in a really positive way that coincidentally would make me less anxious about them. But, you know, I have good ideas for Texas. When I went to India, I just wished I'd brought my clipboard and some post-it notes because I had some very, very good ideas on how people could really get more organized if you thought about it. And it's crazy. So you stop. You know, it's the same with how do people how do people start their novel? How do people get back to writing, which they've loved so much or were good at in college? Where you stop, you begin things by stopping, and um, and you stop doing you stop this crazy ticker tape of thinking that you have good ideas for other people, and you do what's possible. You do the one small action. You send off. 20 bucks to a food bank in Amarillo, you know, that for some reason you've got the link for. And then you do another thing. It's funny because so much of the book, too, is, um, you know, the American way of life is this constant forward thrust that this belief that if you get better grades, if you get the good husband, if you make it in your career, whatever, that that will fill the Swiss cheese holes inside of you. But by a certain age, you realize that it's by giving that you fill the Swiss cheese holds. You realize you're not starving for what you're not getting. You're starving for what you're not giving and sharing. And and so, um, so much, when I first got sober in uh, 86, someone said to me who'd been sober for a few months, she, she said, you know, I started out in sobriety as a big shot. And the, my sober sisters helped me work my way up to servant. And I just love that so much because it's really the secret of life, that if you want to have loving and less frightened feelings today, do some really loving things. Do some anonymous loving things, and you will end up full of hope because you brought the hope to someone else. So now there's hope that invisibly um, in, the, in your little galaxy again because you brought it. You are such an open book to your readers and we get to learn a lot about you over 19 books, but something that I was struck by with Dusk, Night, Dawn was this idea of learning about your parents in ways different than I think I've perceived before from looking at your other books, from reading your other books and listening to your interviews and watching your your interviews on YouTube. They just come through with a very different light of forgiveness in this book for me for some reason 
it's it's more than I've perceived before about them from you. And I wonder if that comes from you in terms of where you are in your life right now and that maturity that you write about that is part and parcel of the idea of forgiveness. I just found those later chapters about your parents so poignant. They were flawed, as we all are, and they they just come through in such a loving light in this book, and I, I really appreciated that. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. You know, I always have, <clears throat> when I'm writing about my parents, mentioned that my mother was from Liverpool, and so she was uniquely <laughs> crazy because she was sort of like a classic English Monty Python character where everything, her focus was on all three of us kids doing better and better and better and achieving more and more and getting, really getting, I mean, I, was th- I wrote in operating instructions that I was 35 when I discovered a B plus was a good grade because most of my, so much of my mother's fixation having arrived from the docks of Liverpool was on the surface and on the appearance of things. And uh, it really hurt me, you know. I always wish there were 12-step programs for the children of the English so we could heal from some of the damage that that surface, that obsession with surface did to us. And my father was raised by Christian missionaries in Tokyo, and he just hated Christians, and which I accidentally ended up being one. And then... Um, and I had so much unlearning to do from my parents. And then uh, I think one of the things about getting old, older is that you, you really do throw a lot of stuff out of the airplane that's kept you flying too low for your entire life, you know, resentments or, or even stories you've been telling yourself that maybe you just made up. And, you know, all my problems are mental. And at some age, you start to wonder if you're going to keep flying so low, just grazing the treetops or whether you're willing to unpack some of this and just throw it out the window of the plane. And I think that's what happened. I love the chapter you're referring to, which had to, both of my parents died in poverty, destitute, but with children who who took, I think, beautiful care of them. So that's a great wealth, but, uh, and great friends, amazing friends, which is for me, the reason why I have so much religious faith is because of the quality of my friends' love and loyalty. But at any rate, they left almost nothing behind except for a, a, a lot of really bad ideas about what matters in life and a couple of goo you know. And <laughs> and so holding the goo and I don't want to say what they are because I, I really love that one chapter, yeah. and I never say that. <laughs> but um, one thing was just something that probably cost my mom $1.99 and another thing was something my father had gotten with his Christian missionaries in India when he was six. And to hold those things and to be able to be with my parents when they held those things and all that they represented for them of value, of their own value, it just made me ache for how hard they, they tried to feel of value and to be a part of, even though you know, my mom came over to America when she was uh, 10. Her father had just died, and with, she had a twin sister. And, and uh, my father came to America when he was 16. And 
they were outsiders and they did all this stuff and, and with their children to feel a sense of union and it hadn't worked for them. And because of the women's movement and these two precious communities I have of a tiny failing little church, St. Andrew Presbyterian, mm-hmm. everybody's welcome Sundays at 11, <laughs> Marin City and, uh, and my recovery community, I, I know what union is. I'm, I am being made whole. It's going a tiny bit more slowly than I had hoped. But when I held my parents' things that had mattered so much to them that I still had them, like 40 years after my dad's death and 20 after my mother's death, I could feel my parents. And it broke my heart in that good way, you know? Like Carly Simon said, there's more room in a broken heart. And, uh, and in that room, I could sit with my parents and really feel them in a, in a new and different way. Anne Lamott, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, Yvette, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I have to go. My phone's ringing. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Anne Lamott is the author of Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.